This week on the show, we're reading the paper about confining the omnipotent root from way back when. We also have a story about jails with ZFS and PF on DigitalOcean. NomadBSD 13.0R is out, and we can show you what it's in there. A KDE Plasma Wayland story on FreeBSD. A bit of privacy for Firefox on the FreeBSD. Using NetBSD's package source everywhere and more is in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 407, The Jail Detail, recorded on the 2nd of June, 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backups for the truly paranoid. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Teuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome back to another show of BSD Now. And uh, is there anything interesting? So for me, it's always, hey, Benedict, what are you doing on Wednesday evening? Ah, uh, nothing special. I'm recording a show with Tom Jones. Really? <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's just me. <laughs> not, not, not the same Tom Jones. Um, right. In in last week's show, we talked about uh, Michael W. Lucas had an interview, and he was asked if he ever Google's himself, and he uh, and he says no because there is an adult performer with the same name, uh, and it's not a great Google. And I thought, wow, someone has finally beat me for an ungoogleable name. <laughs> yeah yeah um worldwide audience can give you worldwide duplicates and uh, yeah we we'll never know who's your evil twin in another universe <laughs> okay uh speaking of evil twins uh let's get into our headlines this week how did i make the bridge from evil twin to jails anyway um the headline reads jails confining the omnipotent root and if you're like wait i know this title yes it's an old paper but nevertheless, uh, relevant today still, it's the original paper from uh, Paul Henningkamp about the jail implementation. Yeah, and it's a, it's a big paper. So it was originally published uh, in SANE in 2000, which makes this a 21-year-old paper. Um, and it is still remarkably relevant, as, as all the great papers are. And it discusses the, the architecture and design of, of the jail subsystem. And, and how it has grown, I think, from its original introduction two years before, in 1998, with FreeBSD4. Um, and it acts as a bit of a tutorial and a bit of an introduction. Um, and it's probably definitely worth a read. I only managed to skim it uh, just before uh, we recorded today, but it's, it's great to see. It's fun to see how, how little some of this has changed. Oh, yeah. You can see the same outputs. Uh, today. I mean, with a little bit of modifications here and there, but... It definitely didn't change too much under under the hood, much more. But from the paper's perspective, where it introduced the whole concept of jails on FreeBSD, it's definitely still valid and well worth reading. Uh, I especially like the little graphics there on page... What page is this? Uh, doesn't have pages. Oh, five. Page five. Is it five? Yeah. Um, where it details the schematic diagram of the machine with two configured jails, how it's put together and how the networking uh, plays into it. And, and maybe the, the more fun part to look at any paper is uh, the bottom of page 13, they talk about future directions. And, and the authors say, the jail facility has already been developed in numerous capacities and a few opportunities for improvement have manifested themselves. Uh, and there's improved virtualization. As it stands, the jail code provides a strict subset of system resources to the jail environment based on access to processes, files, network resources, and privileged services. 
virtualization or making the jail environment appear to be fully functional FreeBSD systems allows maximum application support and the ability to offer a wide range of services within a jail. However, there are a number of limitations on the degree of virtualization in the current code, and removing these limitations will enhance the ability to offer services in a jail environment. Two, are, two areas that deserve greater attention are the virtualization of network resources and the management of scheduling resources. Um, and it goes on to talk about how a single IP is used. Uh, but if we look at how things did evolve with jails and FreeBSD, it wasn't until FreeBSD, oh no, uh, FreeBSD 11 that we had VNet turned on by default. And VNet allows us to virtualize a network stack. And so we can then give each jail an entirely separate instance of the network stack. And so it gets to treat its own networking properly. Uh, but for a long time, we were using cloned um, interfaces on top of the loopback address that were always a bit weird and didn't offer the same uh, isolation and the same discrete componentization of, of what is going on there. Uh, and then the other one, management of scheduling resources. I've never tried to do scheduling based on jails. Uh, I always think the accounting is maybe a bit harder to do. And so maybe there's still more work that could be done there. So it's interesting to see that 21 years later, there are still things to look at. Um, yeah, especially when you have it in a paper like future work. And if you're now in the future <laughs> or coming from the future, looking back. Um, as, the, as the time traveler. Yeah, yeah, this would be a good idea. We should do this. Yeah, did things come true or how did the paper predict things that are now reality? The, the second area for improvement they talk about is improved management. Management of jail environments is currently somewhat ad hoc. Creating and starting jails is a well-documented procedure, but day-to-day -day management of jails, as well as special case procedures such as shutdown, are not well analyzed and documented. The current kernel process management infrastructure does not have the ability to manage pools of processes in a jail-centric way. For example, it is possible to, within a jail, deliver a signal to all processes in a jail, but it is not possible to automatically target all processes within a jail from outside of the jail. If the jail code is to effectively limit the behavior of a jail, the ability to shut it down cleanly is paramount. Um, I think this part of jail management was dealt with, but the the current about um, ad hoc day-to-day -day management is really interesting because what we did get were the Linux uh, version of jails and managed jails in the form of um, containerization and, and Docker and I, I doubt anybody could have imagined in 2000 that we would have something called a Docker Hub where you pull down a, a copy and write file system. Yeah, that's unimaginable from the days of, 20, of 2000. And yeah, it's interesting what people make out of this concept that um, started here. And yeah, sometimes it was not invented here uh, syndrome that made it evolve in, it, in the way it is on other systems now. But... On, on jails and the original implementation from Paul Henningkamp and Robert Watson, that who both wrote this paper. Um, that is definitely a good, solid groundwork, and it makes FreeBSD a secure way of, or gives FreeBSD a secure way of, you know, jailing processes and omnipotent root users that shouldn't be given too much rights. It's, and, it's, yeah. it's fun to look at this and think that... Um... We've struggled to progress because we got, you know, creating jails and starting them down to bat right away. Um, and then the day-to-day -day stuff, we're still trying to figure out how to do. And you see this in the show where we we talked about in the quarter report in the last episode where we said, like, 
And here is a pot for Nomad. And we've talked about CBSD and we've talked about the uh, OCI jail thing. And we have like half a dozen different ways to manage jails. Um, it's easy to think that we're not getting anywhere, but I think the the day-to-day use of the computer is the important part. The getting it going is eh, once every so often, or, you know, today, like every day. Um, but the day-to-day stuff is still really interesting. And it's good to see that um, while they, they could identify that this wasn't something to be solved then, it, it probably isn't something that's solved. It probably is going to be something better and better. Uh, yeah, and if you want, don't want to read this paper yourself, we have also in our show notes a link to the dramatic reading of portions of the paper from the Papers We Love conference of 2016 by Brian Cantrell. And he will um, contrast it not only with jails, but also the Solaris zones. And so he will definitely read it from a Unix lover's perspective and also looking at how it evolved. And then in the in the notes and references at the end, there's a citation for a CH root. Uh, <laughs> they cite a Dr. Marshall Kirk McCusick, a private communication. Oh. Uh, according to the SCCS log, the CH root call was added by Bill Joy on March 18th, 1982 approximately 1.5 years before 4.2 BSD was released. That was well before we had FTP servers of any sort. FTP did not show up in the source tree until January 1983. My best guess as to its purpose was to allow Bill to ch root into the 4.2 build directory and build a system using only the files, include files, etc. contained in that tree. That was the only use of ch root that I remember from the early days. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just... Another nice way of showing you can stand on the shoulders of giants and be a giant yourself in, in, in a certain way. And it's fun, just in two steps of, of 20 years, we're, we're all the way back in, a, in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I like about the BSDs. They have so much history in there and you never know what kind of nuggets you can get out of there that are relevant today. Really nice, yeah. So... Uh, continuing on this theme of jails here from this episode, we have another jail-centered article from medium.com or from a medium uh, road, road writer uh, using jails with ZFS and PF on DigitalOcean. So that's uh, definitely more user-centric or how do I do this jail thing if you still haven't done it? And so it starts with jails are a way to create an isolated environment to run programs in a uh, on FreeBSD, yeah, we know this now. The idea is that given a directory, subtree, hostname, IP address, and start program, you can have an isolated environment to run programs. Those programs running within a jail cannot see information about other processes outside of the jail and cannot open files outside of the directory subtree the jail was started in. I'm currently running Nginx on a droplet within a jail. This jail is currently just acting as a web server, but can eventually act as a reverse proxy for other jails. Uh, yeah, so here's the description. They uh, uh, provide all the uh, commands that you need to run, but you need to run them as root, of course, but they skip that to not mention it each at each command. So they do their file system setup with ZFS, of course. Uh, to have a setup this way, you can choose the right um, uh, implementation or the right droplet from DigitalOcean. It already has that. And... Uh, you start creating a little data set for you uh, for hosting these jails. Uh, in this case, it's setroot slash jails and it's mounted in user local jails, but you can also mount it under slash jails or slash user jails or any kind of path that you like. Um, we can then create a new data set there. Like for each jail, it gets its own 
data set, but in this case, it's the main data set where all the jails are being um, you know, run from or sprung from. Uh, it's called zroot slash jails just base jail, and that hosts the uh, main operating system files. In this case, it's 11.0 with patch level 10, but it could be a new version. It doesn't matter too much. Uh, it oh, oh, they describe how to do it manually. Oh, nice. So they fetched the FreeBSD stable release from the FTP server, extract that into this directory, and copy the resolve conf into it, uh, into a subdirectory of the base jail slash etc, because that's where it should be, and run FreeBSD update on that to get the latest updates for that base jail, to have the latest patched version. And then once you're done, you create a ZFS snapshot to always be able to get back to this state. And from there, you can now clone the snapshot for each new jail. So you can just clone, which is very quickly and easily because it's ZFS. Um, and from there, you create that jail, in this case, www. And from this snapshot, it takes all the information, all the data, all the files from the snapshot and can now live on its own since it's a clone. Uh, and plus, it doesn't take up any additional space, especially when you are running a lot of jails. That's mattering a lot. So only the new changes written to it will be accounted in the file system. So now the firewall and NAT part uh, with PF. Jails need an IP address in order to communicate with other machines, but DigitalOcean instances are only given one public IP address. So to get around this, we can use PF or packet filter to operate as a NAT and place our jail behind the network address translation. First, they need a new loopback network interface. So that's done by setting etcrc.conf, creating a cloned interface entry, LO1, and then create your alias on it on a network address of your choice, or at least in the DigitalOcean um, address space. And next you run ifconfig lo one create and configure this manually with the IP address and netmask. Next up, you enable pf in rc.conf and create your first etc pf con. Be careful here not to lock the only door into the machine that you have. So since DigitalOcean has a, has a way of giving you a console in the machine, that doesn't uh, matter too much, but you still should be able to get into your machine. Open a separate terminal into this machine and keep that open as a root account for now in case you mess up the pfconf. Speaking from experiences here, um, <laughs> so you can always make changes in, in case you lock yourself out. So because firewalls are kind of restrictive in this way. Uh, so they provide a little uh, rule set in there to also do the nutting for these incoming packages on that interface. And that is then get redirected to the actual jail. Uh, they talk a bit about that in the article. Then they talk in the next uh, section about a jail configuration because there's slash etc slash jail.conf where you can say, oh, this script should run each time the jail runs or gets rebooted. So that is done in this configuration file. And then finally run the jail using jail-c www in this case, the name of the jail. And then you can run jxec www and then a shell of your choice if that shell is installed in the machine. And from there you have a shell in the jail and can do all kinds of things that you would normally do on a yeah, physical host. Cool, very nice how-to without any uh, big uh, show about, you know, oh, I need to have a jail manager just to run a jail. No, this is plain and simple. Um, of course, the more jails you have, the more you want to automate that. 
But for starting a simple jail, that's getting you where you want to be. Ah, speaking of jail managers, our next article talks about Nomad BSD 13. Is it 13.0 or 130R? I guess it's 13.0. Uh, so that is out, uh, at least at the time of this recording. Could be that it's uh, final by now. Uh, so yeah, it's here. And yeah, so what's not Nomad BSD? So, so Nomad BSD is a, a live USB FreeBSD distribution. Um, and so it's set up to, to run from USB flash drives and provides a, a desktop based on FreeBSD. And it has automatic hardware detection and setup. Uh, and it should just work out of the box. And the important part of their changelog, Nomad BSD team changed the versioning scheme to the following form, uh, capital F, capital F, lowercase f, x hyphen, uh, year, 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 month, month, day, day, where the, the two capital Fs is the major two-digit FreeBSD version, the small f is the minor version, and the x stands for alpha, beta, RC, or release, followed by the date. So this is uh, Nomad BSD 130 release, which is being announced. Um, <laughs> the next stage, they say the base system has been upgraded to FreeBSD 13.0 release. The partition alignment has been changed to one megabyte to improve write speed on flash drives. So that's good to know. Uh, they fixed the GLX bug and drivers for VMware have been added. Uh, I think the, the update to FreeBSD 13 is probably very substantial and they're they're just hiding that away. Uh, oh yeah, that's good to have these live CDs available and on the latest FreeBSD release, so people can try it out on like uh, new computers and uh, before they buy. Of course, they cannot get into the store too much no. at the moment. I've definitely heard people talk about using Nomad BSD while they're out and about. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. It, it, it's good that the project is still going, and I think it probably feeds back. I think it's really nice that the upgrade to FreeBSD thirteen only is a single line. Uh, and maybe that shows how stable the base is. Mm. They didn't have to futz a lot with it. Yeah. And also these distributions or special distributions always develop some kind of tooling around that FreeBSD doesn't necessarily have to make it uh, easier for, for example, people to use it or set up the Wi-Fi. And that usually spurs into uh, FreeBSD sometimes providing a, sing a similar service like that or it becoming a port and people can install it also on FreeBSD for just this component. Okay, next up we have uh, another blog post from Adrian DeGroote, the the ultimate FreeBSD blogger, it seems. Uh, KDE Plasma Wayland, a week in FreeBSD. Uh, and Adrian starts by saying, if you watched enough of The Muppet Show long ago, like I did, then the continuing story of a cat, which has gone to the dogs, should trigger pigs in space memories. It doesn't for me, but does it for you, Benedict? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a good soap opera, Wayland on FreeBSD keeps give, just keeps giving material for a new episode. So let's take a look at recent changes. And then in a, in a pull quote block uh, Adrian has, I should emphasize that much of the actual work is being done by other people. Much of the time, I'm just the monkey clicking things and then complaining on various instant messenger channels. My favorite response is, that's fixed already. I'd love that response. Uh, and so there's the charm time tracker in deskutil slash charm time tracker. Uh, that hasn't had an upstream release for some time, but there is a patch fixing uh, crashes always after a minute on Wayland. It has a downside. Idle detection doesn't work on Wayland or maybe just in KDE Plasma at all. 
this would be good for my efficiency numbers. It probably would help a time tracker if it could track time. Uh, there's a, there was a bug where focus follows mouse could be tricked by slowly moving the cursor from one window to another. That, that seems quite substantial. Uh, this was reported and fixed upstream for 5.22 and backported to 5.21.4 for FreeBSD just for Adrian, being the packager has, it, <laughs> packager has its advantages. Uh, cursor weirdness that was his own fault for fiddling too much with settings. Simplifying the settings made this easier. I think I just saw one odd cursor shifted over by one pixel with wraparound this week, can't reproduce it. Uh, and finally, VirtualBox is unhappy. I think VirtualBox is always unhappy, both as a Wayland client and as an ex-Wayland client. In KDE, Plasma Wayland, but reportedly also in Sway, this shows there are some specialized protocols to come up with for special cases like full screen VMs. Uh, and he says, until I hit the VirtualBox problem, I'd spent all week in Wayland doing the things I always do, building new UI bits in Calamara's hacking on KDE frameworks, do free, doing FreeBSD port work, doing web front-end work for some LDAP tomfoolery and just didn't notice. It's in great shape for me. Huh. Maybe the soap opera has a happy ending. I didn't think soap operas ended. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't played too much with Wayland, but I heard good things about it. So one day, maybe I will try it out. I, I think the main complaint I see from people um, on, on Linux especially is that screenshotting and screen sharing is, is not great. Mm. Um, so make sure you're not playing with it the next time you go to a conference, Benedict. Yeah, or giving a lecture to students and, hey, let me show it to you on my <laughs> command line here. Oops, <laughs> doesn't work anymore. Uh, but yeah, maybe that gets fixed also uh, one day. So eventually we will all stream this way or get into the Wayland game. Uh, next, he has something more for the privacy-focused folks. Uh, install Firefox under FreeBSD and set it up with privacy. Uh, this is on Dan Schmidt blogs, who's done a couple of good articles about FreeBSD in German. And most of these, or some of them, have been now uh, also made available in English. So uh, the screenshots are in German. Not a problem for me, of course. But, I mean, Firefox is Firefox. The uh, menu bars are all everywhere. I didn't, are. I didn't notice these were in German. You didn't? No. Uh, it's, I mean, it's all a the browser. tabs are in English. <laughs> Probably I'm more tuned to seeing German text. Um <laughs> So yeah, uh, Firefox, for people who need an introduction, it's a free open source web browser, small, fast, and easy to use. And uh, they, uh, well, it's easy to install on FreeBSD, package install Firefox. And um, ah, they he also installs KeePass XC, uh, which we'll need to improve the privacy. So the Firefox browser is inherently privacy focused or privacy conscious, um, but, Dan Schmidt shows here um, even more security and privacy out of Firefox that you can do in the about preferences, for example. There you can always um, make things worse than they are, but in this case, he shows us the parts that are focused around privacy. Um, yeah, he recommends some extensions while browsing and recommends functions as well there. Oh no, he deactivates both. Okay, so in there, you can uh, put a setting there to remove the recommended extensions and remove uh, recommend functions while browsing. And he also disables important pages, recommended by pocket, overview, and brief information uh, options. So that is uh, stripping down the browser a little bit. And they also remove all existing search engines and use CRX as the only standard search engine. Never heard about CRX. Neither have I. So I use... Um, 
G, where is it? Just lost it. <laughs> um, ah, DuckDuckGo. Yeah, I, I, I also use DuckDuckGo. It's a great, uh, it, it, it will very happily tell you your IP address, which is a great feature for any search engine. <laughs> yeah. I don't have to go to a dodgy website to figure out where I'm coming from. Yeah, and from search results, it's comparable or definitely on, on par with Google. Of course, Google is still the uh, the big shot out there, the the main one. But I, I've rarely, I rarely need to go back to Google to search and find something that the DuckDuckGo engine doesn't find. But it, uh, it's going good there back. are more search engines, and there's good, there's more privacy focused ones being suggested. Yeah, definitely. And uh, since this ties into this article very well, so maybe I'll take a look at Crex and maybe switch to that one day. Uh, so privacy, uh, of course, cookies, activity tracking content should also be disabled. A little further down, uh, they go into the about config dialog, and of course, this is risky. Uh, we can, you know, make the whole browser worse than it is. But here, uh, we disable the tracking protection, or no, enable the tracking protection with the fingerprinting enabled, setting that to true. Okay, interesting. Um, uh, why is huh? privacy.trackingprotection.cryptomining.enabled equals true? Why would you want to have that? It protects you from crypto mining. Oh, okay. It's the other way around. So it's, yeah. yeah. Uh, right. some, maybe some of these aren't well named, but uh, it goes into uh, almost 20 different options in about config. Yeah, we don't need all of them here. And uh, very just... helpfully suggests what the option, the value you want is. <laughs> uh, I don't know how you're meant to guess some of these. Uh, yeah, it's. Yeah, there's there's description for each of those and what kind of values they take and what that means. For example, like cookie behavior equals one means only accept from the original website and zero would mean accept all cookies by default and two would mean block all cookies by default. So the setting here is a bit uh, in between those um, and it can, you can make your own educated guesses if you want to be more open or more private. Uh, then there's a section about linking Firefox with KeyPass XC. Um, since they have deactivated the Firefox sync service earlier, uh, but we still want to save our passwords securely, they would like to introduce us to the KeePass XC program. And there's a little bit of a description at the beginning, of course. Uh, it's a native cross-platform cross, cross port of KeePass password safe with the aim of adding new features and improving it and bug fixes for a feature-rich cross-platform and modern feature. Uh, it has some uh, extra features. Uh, they're all listed here, but uh, they're not too relevant for what we do here. How do I use KeePass X is the question. Uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, it is, it's a little bit of a screenshot tour from within the browser. Um, you, when you start KeePass XC for the first time, there's the main screen where you can select the database where you want to store in uh, your keys into and inside, and you can always choose your own two different databases, like for work passwords versus private passwords. And so that can easily be two separate databases. So they walk us through how to uh, enable that and choose the encryption settings for this. Uh, you can uh, make some advanced settings here, like the encryption algorithm, key derivation functions, uh, encryption passes, and memory usage. So that's uh, a lot of setting up for you, but it's definitely uh, well worth doing because passwords should always be kept safe. There's a mention of Bitwarden as an alternative to KeePass XC, uh, but you can kind of pick what you want. He also mentions a couple of data protection oriented add-ons. 
that you want to install. Oh, some of those are new that I don't know. Yeah, so it talks directly about 12 of these. Um, there, there were two just for YouTube. Uh, there was a cookie blocker, uh, a cookie warning blocker, which is a, a big problem in Europe for a lot of pages. Um, yeah. Converting AMP to HTML, which is helpful if people link you to Google AMP pages. Uh, HTTP, HTTPS everywhere. Um, local CDN. Um, oh, local CDN makes jQuery, Bootstrap, and other similar things available from you locally rather than going out to third-party providers. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, uh, Chameleon, Canvas Blocker, and of course, uBlock Origin. That's the, if I don't have that, it's the first thing I do when I get a browser installed, a fresh one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great seeing all of us together, but it's also really scary about all the things you can do to to make the web browser more more private. I yeah, really wish these were on, on by default. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're both IT people, but I mean, for people who are just using it to browse the web, I mean, they're now more uh, aware, I guess, um, because of the news that, oh, browser was hijacked and stuff. But doing all these settings in um, for normal people, I mean, we're also normal, but you know what I mean. Um, that's kind of very involved and in going deep inside. Um, but yeah, if you want privacy, then it's probably the thing that you have to do nowadays. Uh, but nevertheless, we have other news for you, um, not just from the sad privacy space um, or the privacy invading space. Uh, here's one about using NetBSD's package source everywhere I can. That was featured on uh, Hacker News, I think. Okay, so this is a blog post by, by Ruben. Uh, they write, NetBSD's package source, package manager, is the best thing since sliced bread. Like everything the, BSD, the NetBSD maintainers touch, it's high quality, well-documented, predictable, and portable to a fault. I use it everywhere I can from my macOS and FreeBSD laptops to remote Linux machines. This has led many people on social networks to ask me why and to give examples. The biggest reason comes down to what I call digital hygiene, best described by Merlin Mann as not storing compost in your vegetable crisper. There's value in disambiguating personal tools and applications from what is required to run the system because updating one shouldn't impact the other. Now, I'll skip the bit about why they like BSDs more than Linux because we, we all know why. Um, I use package source and systems for the same purpose. I use the system package manager to install the software I need for my desktop environment on workstations or services on servers, then let package source handle tooling that I've got more flexibility to break and tinker with. It maintains its own tree and slash opt, which means in a pinch, I can blow away the whole thing without affecting the rest of the system. This is especially useful on Debian, given most Linux distros make no distinction between system and application packages. I even use it on FreeBSD, where a dedicated jail for each project might be overkill, or when I want to maintain the exact same version of tools across my FreeBSD and Mac machines. Did I mention how portable package source is? So this is a really interesting view of using package source. This is like using a... Uh, a virtual environment in Python or Ruby to separate out the project-specific packages you need to install. For your entire development system, use package source because it can be in sync on every operating system because package source runs everywhere. And you can delete all of it when you're sick of it. Yeah. And you have your familiar environment everywhere. Yeah. Speaking of macOS, what about Homebrew? I use it to install graphical applications. But by design, it's no longer possible to easily modify build options. It's part of a broader trend on macOS to protect users from themselves and to deliver a better experience, but it gets in the way of my work. Mac ports is far more useful, but I use package source everywhere else 
So it makes sense to stick with tools I know. Mm, yeah, that, that it's always a trade-off between having every option be able to compile and change by the user versus I just want this port installed. Yeah, I, and I definitely feel their pain because I was trying to get um, the the bindings for Python for Wireshark's command line tool running in different places this week. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, sometimes it can be an absolute nightmare because when you've got to link a bit against the, the nightly builds of Wireshark to get support for things you need, Suddenly, you're you're more interested in like, I want the modular bits. This all needs to go away tomorrow, so I can get the next nightly. Uh, and it's a really interesting view. Maybe it's a perspective that package source should try and push more as well. Because I've never really understood why I would want to use package source when FreeBSD package is, is is great, and I never really have any trouble with homebrew. But I can I can actually understand this view. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, before we go into the feedback and questions section, we should mention our sponsor for this week, Tarsnap, which is the online backup for the truly paranoids. Do you use Tarsnap, Tom? Uh, I no longer use Tarsnap. Ah, that's sad. I, I was using Tarsnap to back up some stuff, and I contacted Colin uh, because I'd run out of credit, but the things I'd backed up, I didn't have the keys for anymore. And, oh, and rather than trying to, rather than just taking my money, Colin was was very friendly and he said well if you're not really using tarsnap why don't you just delete everything and i'll refund you what you've paid me oh, uh, and that's... that is the 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 real nice thing about tarsnap is getting a direct personal response from from the company where they're more cared about you having a good relationship with them than, than just getting money from you yes that's that's becoming rare in the industry i am afraid um so yeah uh definitely colin who wrote tarsnap and is running the tarsnap company um is definitely very approachable and um, helpful, even if he can't help because he even he can't retrieve lost keys and he doesn't have a, a, a secret backup of, of sorts for everything, uh, even though he runs the service. So he can't help you restore once you destroyed your backup keys. Um, but it's a very thought out way of um, having a backup service. I mean, by definition, backups are boring until the day you need them. And a backup service is probably not the one that will give you, as a backup service provider, a lot of money unless you provide a certain feature that everyone needs or doesn't uh, is not given by the <laughs> opportunity or by the, uh, by the competition. And Tarsnap has some unique features like the local encryption and the... Uh, deduplication. I mean, some other services are doing this now, but uh, Tarsnap is very unique that um, they started very early with that and they can definitely really go deep into your uh, data and figure out what are the duplicate blocks in there and uh, then compress it with their own uh, algorithms. And yeah, then these files are encrypted, sent out to the Tarsnap cloud, which sits on AWS. And there it waits and waits and waits until the day you need your backups or you just want to retrieve them. <laughs> Either it's an emergency or you have a need to get this one file back. And then once you have the key, you can pull it down again and unencrypt it and get the actual data without gibberish back. Uh, pricing is very competitive. And as Tom mentioned, you even got your money back since you're not using the Tarsnap service at the moment. Maybe you come back to it one day. Um, yeah, so it's really not uh, meant to make uh, Colin a very rich man. And so he provides a nice service, a very useful one for people who have a bit more, uh, you know, paranoid needs. Because 
Some backups are very critical, they contain important data, and if other people would get to them, that would be very difficult or very bad for you, especially when you're a company using Tarsnap or as a private person like tax data and other uh, sensitive information. And so that's why Tarsnap is there to encrypt your backups and making sure they are safe and sound. You can read all about the technical infrastructure, how the uh, design was done for Tarsnap, and even look at the source code in case you are really curious about special things like encryption and stuff and maybe find something in there. Carlin also has a uh, running bug bounty for anything uh, starting from cosmetic errors like, oh, there's a typo fix that you need to do here on the website until uh, going way up until, hey, I have a very serious bug in Tarsnap um, and he gives you money if you found something that is very critical. Um, and that's also a nice way of, you know, you can trust us. This is a very useful service. So check it out. Tarsnap is there for your backup needs in all kinds of bad situations that you hopefully never want to get into. All right, feedback and question time. We are hopefully getting enough feedback. Yes, we get, um, but you can always send us more. Some people are regulars now and some people are first time uh, question askers we both are happy to answer and, and uh, in case we can answer sometimes it's very detailed um, but people are looking forward to each every week so we should get right into it uh, Malcolm is the first with a question about restoring a single file Malcolm asks is it possible to restore a single file from a ZFS snapshot I accidentally deleted a large file that I have in a snapshot and copying it over is possible, but this file never changes, so it's a waste of space. If this doesn't exist, is it a feature on the map? Thanks for the great show. Yeah, so uh, it's very possible to restore a single file without you know, rolling back the snapshot. And if you accidentally deleted a large file or could even be a smaller file, like any file um, that is part of a snapshot, there is, you go into the directory where this file was, and there is a hidden directory called .zfs in there. And in there are all subdirectories with the names of the snapshots that you have made of this file or this uh, snapshot. Uh, not, not snapshot, of the data set, of course. And you CD into it like any other directory and pull out the files from there by copying them to where they were. Of course, you cannot copy stuff into it because it's a read-only file system as a snapshot. And there you can copy uh, the most recent snapshot or the one from the file two weeks ago or whatever snapshot uh, routine you have. That's the way you get back to the file without having to roll back the whole file system just to get this single one back. Uh, you definitely uh, will appreciate this. And if you want to have this directory visible, you can set the uh, snap dir equals... Uh, visible, I think, property to ZFS. The man page would have it. Uh, it's probably snap to your equals visible. Um, and then it will always show up in your LS minus uh, L listing or LS minus A listings as a directory. And sometimes people will wonder, hey, what's this for? I, I didn't put it there. Um, but it's hidden. Uh, whether it's hidden or not, it's always there. If you have a snapshot, you can access it this way. And so you can impress people by, hey, do you know this trick? I have this single hidden directory here. Um, and in case you need it, it's there. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't get in the way. 
Cool. Thanks for this feedback. And uh, next one and the last one for this episode, because we're running short on time soon, uh, is Nathan with a wireless support question. That's really something for you, uh, Tom, because networking. So I read, uh, I have a lot of old laptops around the house and I like to install different operating systems on them. Uh, it would be nice to know ahead of time whether the Wi-Fi is going to work. Does any of the BSDs have a list of which wireless cards support it? Uh, I know I can look in individual OpenBSD driver man pages, for example, but does anyone have a whole list in one place? Sadly, I, I don't think anybody does. Um, FreeBSD will also list the will list devices in man pages for drivers. the The problem with these lists, though, is that um, like USB cards and uh, expandable like PCIe cards can be sold with the same name and have different chipsets. Uh, and can be sold with different names for the same chipsets. And so while the man page is a good starting point, it's really difficult to track down exactly what is what over time. Uh, uh, one way you could do this to look things up is uh, you could try looking at the... Uh, there's a there's a hardware device support wiki. I can't remember what it's called. Um, that tracks a lot of hardware support for, for Linux. And from there, you can normally find out what the chipset is called. And then you can work back from the chipset into what the driver is in FreeBSD or OpenBSD or NetBSD. And then you can look at the man page and see what's supported. I think once you know what card you're looking for, typically you can find things on Google quite well. But if you're coming from the point where you just want a wireless card and you don't know what to do, uh, I'd look at the RTWN man page uh, and pick something from there and sign something with supported because these are typically very cheap and very well supported and they have been the same things for a long time, but they've also started to change. So it's really difficult. Um, yeah, wireless support is always going to be a hard one. There are too many players in the market to have any unified front. And so it's it's just, uh, you, you get what you can get. And it's been like this since, uh, you know, 2002 when we added support. Yeah, uh, it's always a catch up game with the documenting of what's supported and what's not. Uh, you could also try uh, the one we mentioned last episode i think nomad bsd or any other like bootable usb stick and it will definitely um try initializing the driver for this network card and if you have a very old laptop the chances are bigger that there could be a driver available still or already yeah and if you're moving between lots of old laptops then really you just need to find one usb wi-fi that works and you can take it across yeah. Um, and maybe that's not a permanent solution, but it's definitely something that you can get the machines going. Yeah, to download some stuff and then go on from there. But yeah, I don't think there's one big page where you can just search and find this compatibility across releases and across operating systems. Uh, each BSD, I think, has a hardware page, but even those are, you know, there are more people creating these Wi-Fi cards every day before these lists get updated, unfortunately. Uh, but a lot of these drivers work with, uh, like, you know, as Tom mentioned, like uh, different revisions or different uh, sub uh, versions or uh, things like that. Um, so compatibility is there. Sometimes they have some crazy quirks in there. But um, driver developers, uh, if you don't have, if your car doesn't work with a supposed uh, to be working driver, then get back to the to the author and offer help in debugging, and then the chances are higher that. The developer sits down and creates a compatible patch for your driver so that it gets to work as well. Yeah, and, and sometimes it's not actually a very high bar. Um, 
sometimes the USB device ID will be different than the than before. Uh, so the same chipset has a different USB ID, and all it takes is adding four numbers uh, into the driver, and then we have support for it. Sometimes it can be a lot more work, but uh, the first patch I ever submitted to FreeBSD was um, a device ID for an SPI flash trip on a MIPS router, and it was just a slightly, it was like a C variant of the chip, uh, and which we didn't have the, the string for. And so I, I gave that to Adrian Chad, and it was the first thing that landed in FreeBSD. And this is the secret. This is how we get you. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, for me, this is next to magic. Like this is this hardware device here and I plugged it in and someone else has made it sing and dance. And so that's just magic for me. I mean, I know how this would work, but I couldn't do it myself. <laughs> Only if I tried very hard um, and I had a lot of time, which I don't. Yeah, I'm a, I appreciate all the people who are writing drivers and making actually hardware available for this operating system. And it's also mentioning that um, some driver or some manufacturers are not very keen on putting out information or documentation about their devices. And so people cannot develop good drivers for their devices. But yeah, that's a story for another time. Uh, we're quite finished, I think, for today. So yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you, Tom, again for helping out and we'll be back with another show next week.